In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to our newest installment in our series on the topic of the afterlife, uh, where today, inshallah, we will be uh, finishing off the topic that we started uh, in our last encounter. Uh, and this is the topic of Al-Barzakh, the intermediary world or the middle world, uh, especially since uh, we got a few more questions uh, and concerns during the week uh, that I received about it. So I thought we would do a quick recap to clarify what we presented and then try to complete it uh, with some things that we left out so that uh, the lecture doesn't become too long last time we met. Inshallah, we can finish it off today. So very quickly in terms of a recap or where we had start, uh, stopped, we said that the, in terms of a terminology, uh, when we say al-barzakh, literally it means a barrier. And uh, more technically, uh, the term has been used to describe the world between this life, when a human being passes away, when they leave this world, and uh, the time when they are brought back, resurrected in the afterlife, Yom Al-Qiyamah. So, technically speaking, Al-Barzakh, or this realm, this dimension, uh, is still part of this world, except that for us human beings, for practical purposes, in order to actually act and do anything, uh, we no longer have any possibility to do anything once we reach the point of death. And so, while Adam al-Barzakh is still part of this type of existence, this entire world, for our lives as human beings, it's beyond our lives. And that's why it's in this intermediary middle ground between this world and the next world. But as we said, technically speaking, it's still part of this world. And inshallah, in the weeks to come, we're going to see how uh, this world will come entirely to an end. And this includes Alam al-Barzakh. So Alam al-Barzakh will come to an end. This world, everything that we know in it, you know, the universe as we know it, the material world, everything we know about this world, will come to an end, including al-Barzakh. Okay, so th this is how we distinguish between what is part of this world and what is part of the next world. The uh, few points that we had made, we said that Alam al-Barzakh begins once we have gone through the phases that bring us to Adam al-Barzakh. So this includes the last moments of our lives. So this is when we're actually in the process of dying. And it includes the process of extraction of the soul. And it, it includes the moment where the soul is actually extracted. And then we are in that moment where there is an interrogation that takes place from angels about the main tenets of our faith. The main tenets, not the details, just the main things regarding our God, our prophet, our book, and inshallah we're gonna mention a few more points regarding that. Once this is done, then we find ourselves in this 
world, which we refer to as, and depending on the narrations you look at, it may be referred to as the grave, al-qabr. It could be referred to as al-barzakh, for instance, or just the realm of death, okay, al-mawt, during that time. So all of this begins, as we said, there's a quick uh, succession of steps that take place. So there is sakarat al-mawt. This is the, the, the pangs of death, the dying moments of a human being. And then there's the extraction of the soul. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Mala'ikatu for instance, again and again, when the angels are there to extract the soul. And then there is the actual end. So this is This is when it's all over. The process is done. We've entered in another world. The angels were greeted right away. And then the angels come in those first, second days we are in the grave for an interrogation. And we included in all of that Baghdad al-Qabr or Bommat al-Qabr or Asrat al-Qabr, depending on the narrations you look at. Okay, and we talked, I think, enough about that, so uh, I'm moving faster. One of the points that we mentioned here is that there are a lot of things that a human being can do, as well as things that a human being can leave behind to help with all of these difficulties. Because whether you know we like it or not, we're all going to go through all of these. And as we said, it varies greatly from one human being to another how they are going to experience each one of these steps, each one of these moments. So for some, it will be easy and they will look forward to every part because it's delightful and pleasurable and satisfying to go through these because of the way they're being greeted, the way they're being welcomed, the way they're being treated. Whereas for others, it's one difficulty after another, each one of these steps. So there's a lot that we can do in, these, in this life of ours to help with all of this, okay? And as we said, you know, the general rule in all of this, when we talk about death, everything including death, and that includes all of Adam and Barzakh, we said we should keep in mind this narration from the Holy Prophet as our golden rule. That The Holy Prophet says, as you lived, or as you live, so shall you die. You lived a good life, you were virtuous and righteous, your death is going to be good. And as you die, so shall you be raised. So already it's an indication that if you want to be raised in a manner that is delightful to you, that's respectable and dignified and honored in the afterlife, then the manner in which you were dealt with as you were dying is already a good indication of how that will look like. And someone who knows what to look for in this world it's also an indication of things to come, of how you were, how you conducted yourself, how you carried yourself in this world. The, as we said, we talked about the questioning or the interrogation, that it only has to do with the main beliefs. And then we said that one of the important points is that it varies significantly or greatly from one human being to another, to the point where there are people, when they reach the afterlife, they, when they reach Alam al-Barzakh after they die. To some, as we said, it's going to be easy to go through these steps. And once they find themselves in Alam al-Barzakh, to some people, the experience is not going to be as intense. Okay, so it's going to be a weaker experience. The level of awareness may not be the same as for others. Some people are going to be allowed to move around and travel and see their families on a daily basis. Others on a weekly, others on a monthly, others much less often. There are people who will be moved around to be shown their places in heaven or hell. 
there are people who will be uh, simply getting an opening in their graves as to what their heaven or hell may look like. In some narrations, as we will see today, inshallah, there's a reference that the smell, the perfumes and the smell of heaven will reach them, or the heat of the hell will reach them. So they're not there, but they are being exposed to something of that nature in their graves. Others are actually going to be exposed to or even entered into a type of heaven or hell that is in the barzakh. So it's not the heaven or hell in the afterlife, and we're going to mention that today, inshallah, but it is a heaven and hell, and we looked at some verses of the Quran that clearly talk about a heaven and hell, and those are not in the afterlife. When those verses specifically state that there is another heaven or hell awaiting them in the afterlife. Okay, and that will be the greater punishment or the greater humiliation awaiting them. So all of that, inshallah, is going to be, I think, uh, clear enough. We also talked about, is there any link or not between this world and the next? And this is the reason why we mentioned this is that these are some of the issues that have caused a lot of discussion and books have been written about them, especially in the last few years. The entire topic of Alam al-Barzakh and what happens once we are in our graves. Uh, and is there any type of connection between this world and the next? They've been, you know, topics that have been addressed a lot again and again. So these, this is where it's important to go back to our original sources and to see what have our imams actually told us about all of this before we start kind of conjecturing and coming up with our own theories as we talked about a couple of years, uh, weeks ago. So when we go back to the narrations, we see that Despite what some have said, which is Allah subhanahu wa has called this a barzakh, a barrier, therefore there is absolutely no interaction. Well, there is some sort of relationship still going on because of how we can still have an impact on their lives, on their existence in Alam al-Barzakh. For instance, by performing certain deeds and gifting the tawab to them, performing prayers, reciting al-Fatiha, giving uh, food or other meals, performing the, the, the actions, the, the deeds, that they did not perform during their lives. For instance, there are people perhaps who are part of your family, uh, you know, beloved people to you, and you think that they did not perform certain prayers, certain fasts, or they did not perform a recitation of the Quran, or if you can, they did not perform, for instance, a hajj, a pilgrimage, or a umrah, then when you have the opportunity to do so, and you do that for them, it significantly changes their state, because now there was a gap in their record, and you filled it for them. So they're getting the, you're getting the reward for doing that for them, but they, for them it's very significant what you have just sent them. And the least, as we said, remember your deaths, as we have in many narrations, at the time of sunset in general. A lot of people from the, in the world of Alam al-Barzakh, they are actually allowed to come visit their families every day at the time of sunset. So remember them at that time or once a week. So this is usually the night of, the eve of uh, the Friday, so uh, fr uh, Thursday nights, or once a month, or in certain months of the year, or fewer times in, their, in our lifetimes. It happens here and there. So usually it's much closer to the time the person passes away, for instance. Uh, and as we said, the souls may be taken from different places to other locations once a day or once a week or more, moved around depending on where they are. For instance, they might be taken to see things related to, you know, the pleasures, the delights of the, uh, of the uh, awaiting those who are good, those who are virtuous and righteous, 
and the opposite. And sometimes it's you feel that in the grave itself, it's not as intense as what they're being taken to or exposed to and brought back once or twice or more a day in certain narrations. We have in one narration from Imam Ali salam, in which he says that they sit there and read the Quran, they recite the Quran in, in groups, in circles, uh, those who are righteous. And he sees them and he talks to them, for instance. So in any case, as we said, they have their own uh, existence, there's interactions, but all of this depends on what you what you're given permission to do. And this depends on your level, your how good you are, and, and so on and so forth. And as we said, we can do, we can certainly do a lot of things to help those who are deceased, as well as doing things for ourselves. We do them now so that we're we have a much more pleasant existence in Alam and Barsa. Okay, and we mentioned a number of these things. Some of the most important in many traditions is the conduct, the manners, the respect that you display with your family members, with your children, with your wife, with your parents, with your siblings. All of this is going to be very important in Alam al-Barzakh. This is mentioned again and again, in addition to other things, and we're going to mention them today, inshallah. Okay, so, and then we're not going to repeat all the verses of the Qur'an, but we established the existence of Alam al-Barzakh from the whole Qur'an. We established that those who are in Alam al-Barzakh have uh, a full awareness of what is happening to them. The human being who is leaving this world, who is dying, fully understands what's going on until they reach Adam and Barzakh. They fully understand what's going on. And then we talked about all of that. So this is to say that the world itself exists and our level of awareness is there. And it's not like thinking, you know, the body is dead, therefore there's absolutely no more activity going on. And we said the rest, the details, depends on who you are. There are people who are socializing in the in Adam and Barzakh. They're talking to each other, they're visiting each other. As we saw in multiple verses of the Quran, they are eating, they are drinking, there's provision, there's rizq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to them. So it's an entire life and it's an entire realm and dimension happening. But this is not to everyone and not in the same way. So the more you prepare yourself for that in this world, the more you make it pleasant for yourself in the Alam al so all of these verses, we're not going to repeat them. We established also that uh, in addition to the fact that it exists as a world and that human beings are aware of what's going on, there's also punishment and a reward taking place. They are not as severe as what awaits us in the afterlife, not as intense, both pleasure and pain, but certainly much more pleasurable or painful than anything we've experienced on this earth and this life. Okay, so we'll, we'll end with that, inshallah, today very quickly. And then we, we read this as one of the stories in the Holy Quran, which clearly are a reference to this man uh, who was sent to the people of, of, most likely, according to the narrations we saw, uh, the people of Antioch, Antakya, where he was sent there as the third of the messengers to preach to those people, most likely Christianity. This is Habib bin Najjar. And... At the end, they were killed and he was killed with them. And as soon as he leaves this world, he says, if only my people knew how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven me and how he, what he has made me enter into. So the Jannah that I have now entered. So this is a Jannah in Barzakh. This is not the Jannah of the Yom Al-Qiyamah, right? And of course, his people don't know what is going on. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they were arrogant. They felt superior. They felt strong. And they killed these messengers that came to them, preaching them guidance and truth and good 
So Allah says, we did not send an army to get rid of them. We did not do any of that. One, one glass, one cry, one shout, and we got rid of them. That was the punishment. Immediate for almost like a vengeance uh, to honor these people that they had just killed. Okay, so in any case, we're, that, that was the, the story that we went through very quickly. And then we went through, again, a few incidents, events, narrations that we saw beyond the Holy Quran that talk about Adam and Barzakh, and in which we have behaviors from people like the Holy Prophet or Imam Ali alayhi salam, and in which we clearly get a, a further proof, a further argument that there is in fact Adam and Barzakh, that human beings do not cease to exist, they don't go into some state of complete unawareness of what's going on. No, they hear and they see. And the problem is with us. We don't have the faculties to understand what's going on in their world. But there's certainly an existence. There's certainly an awareness to a large extent of what's going on, especially if it's someone like the Holy Prophet or Imam Ali said, I'm talking to them. Maybe they would not hear me talking to them. And they would not see me because of, you know, depending on who they are and what they've been granted in terms of access and permissions, as we said. Uh, you know, in, in certain narrations, for instance, as we saw, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for those who are good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He allows them to see all the good that is happening in their families, but He does not let them see all the bad that may displease them. So this is part of the reward in Barzakh. And the opposite, He allows those who were evil in this world not to see anything that is good happening in their family members and those they love, but he lets them see all the things that may displease them, cause them unhappiness, discomfort. Okay, so this is already part of the more psychological aspect of, you know, the torture or the, the reward that is taking place in Adam and Barzah. So as we said, this is happening in uh, the life of the Holy Prophet, the life of Imam Ali where, where we went through a couple of incidents to show that they are talking to the dead. And so we would not expect someone who is dead to know what is going on, okay? In um, the, the next topics, and those are the ones that we did not cover. So up to here, inshallah, all this has, was clear. We knew what, you know, all this was covered. And uh, we have gone through all of these, the, the proofs, the, the points that go to, to each one of these uh, elements that we just described. From here, I think, inshallah, it's a little bit of a compliment to what we presented. There's a first topic related to Adam and Barzakh, and again, this is not a matter of consensus. Okay, so again, as I've always said, I try to expose you to certain things just to give you kind of the tools and you know where to look and what are the issues that are a matter of consensus and what are the issues where there might be a bit of contention or disagreement between some of the scholars. This is one of them. To what extent is there intercession in Adam and Barzakh. So the general rule and the majority of our scholars say that there is no intercession that happens, there is no shafa'ah that happens in Adam and Barzakh. And of course, this is all based on the traditions of the narrations. Do all of them say that? No. And we're going to see the alternatives. Okay, but just generally speaking, so that you understand where the majority of the opinion is. We have narrations, and here we have two of them. In one of them, and this is in Tafsir al-Qummi, uh, Imam al-Sadiq says, I swear that I fear nothing for you except Barzakh. So he's talking to his followers. Then he adds, for when the matter will be to us, 
In other words, when it will be judgment day, when we will be in the hereafter, the afterlife, it shall be more fitting for us to take care of you. Okay, so once you will be in the afterlife and where we will exercise our shafa'a fully, this is when we will really take care of you through our shafa'a. But in Adam and Barzakh, so what we understand from this is that Muhammad Sadiq is perhaps saying that there is no shafa'a or their shafa'a is not applied in a direct way in Adam and Barzakh. Okay, so that's one narration. In another narration, I don't have it in, in Arabic here, it would have been too long. Amr ibn Yazid says, I told Imam Sadiq uh, I have heard you saying, all of our followers will ultimately be in paradise. So he's telling Imam Sadiq I heard you saying, all of your Shia, all of your followers will end up in paradise, will end up in heaven. Okay? Will be in paradise regardless of how they are. So now we're going to understand what he means by how they are. He said, I have told you the truth by God. They will be all in paradise. So the person asking, the, the companion of the Imam asking the question, now asks where the objection is. Now adds where the objection is. So the narrator says, may I be a sacrifice to you? The sins are many and are great. So how can all these people end up in heaven if they have, like many other people, they have sins, they have a lot of sins, and some of their sins are great sins. So the Imam responds, he says, as for the day of judgment, they will be in paradise through the intercession of the Prophet whose orders, i.e. whose intercession, whose orders are obeyed or through the intercession of one of his successors. Okay, so at the end, one way or another, they will be in paradise. Then he adds, well, the Imam adds, but I swear by God that I fear the barzakh for you. Okay, so the narrator asked, and what is al-barzakh? To which the Imam replied, the grave from the moment of death until the day of judgment. These are a couple of the more famous narrations that we have, and there are a few others, that explicitly state from some of the Imams that there is no intercession happening in Adam and Basah. This, I started the slide with as a general rule. Okay, so even in these rules and these matters, we know that there are always exceptions. That's one. Okay, so... First and foremost, this is a general rule, but this is an important thing to keep in mind for us, that perhaps even when there is intercession, it does not apply the same way in Adam and Barzakh. So let this be a reminder and a warning for us, that we're kind of on our own in Adam and Barzakh. That's what. Now let's add a few more points to this. When we go through the narrations, we're not saying that the, the intercession, the Shafa'a of Ahlul Bayt does not apply at all as soon as we are dead and until we reach Adam al-Akhirah, the afterlife. That's not what we're saying. Clearly, in all the narrations, there is a consensus that as a human being is going through the dying moments, so all of this, the moment you are dying, the moment the, the soul is getting extracted, the moment you are actually dead, and as you are starting to being questioned, all of that, so this is the beginning leading up to what we've described as Adam and Barzakh, there is a clear presence of Ahlul Bayt during that time. So that's one. So let's establish that clearly. So it's not to say that there is absolutely no presence from Ahlul Bayt That's one thing to keep in mind. Afterwards, 
There is a difference between saying that there is no intercession, so it becomes a technical issue. There is no intercession, and saying that the effect of Ahlul Bayt is not the same when we are in Adam al Barzakh, which may most likely be what the Imam is referring to. Why do we say that? Because when you go through the narrations, and there's a lot of them, you know, dozens upon dozens of narrations having to do with this topic, a lot of them fall into this general category. So here I've given you one big example because there's a lot of narrations and the same meaning. So you get a glimpse of a lot of them at once where you're told, for instance, that as a human being dies and before they are questioned, there are entities that look extremely good that start appearing around them. So one of those entities in one of those narrations, for instance, one of those entities comes to stand by the right of the human being, and another one by the left of the human being, and another one by their feet, and another one by their head, and one of them much bigger and much more beautiful and uh, you know much more illuminating, much stronger in effect, comes to kind of hover or be on top of the human being. And so the Ahmed describes us and they say, the one on the right is your prayer. The one on your left is your fasting. The one at your feet is going to be charity and pilgrimage. So these are what we generally refer to as the pillars of our actions, right? The most important of, you know, sometimes we refer to them as furu'adeen, the practical teachings of Islam. And then you have the one on top, and this is al-wilayah. This is your understanding and your following of the right leadership in this life. This is your belief in who your Imam is. Who did the Holy Prophet tell you to follow? Okay, so you have all of that. And then if you go in more narrations, we're told the Wilayah talks to them. It tells the prayer and the charity, take care of him. And whatever you cannot handle, I will take care of it. So this is where you start understanding the role of the Wilayah. That it is the most powerful, the most uh, effective one, but it plays a different role. You cannot go there without any prayer, and you cannot go there without any fasting, and you cannot go there without any pilgrimage. But it's telling them the deficiencies and the lacks, I will take care of them. Okay? But what is the wilayah? If it's not this relationship and link with Ahlul Bayt, So, while you may say there is no intercession, we're not saying that your attachment and your love of and your following and your respect of Ahlul Bayt plays no role. It is clearly playing a role. In fact, it's probably playing the biggest role in your barzakh. It's just not playing a different role, which is, and inshallah, we're going to devote a couple of lectures to shafa'a and how it operates, what it means, and we establish it very clearly later. It's just not playing that technical role. But we're not saying that there, your attachment and relationship to the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, those are the people you have to follow. Those are the people that you have to consider your leaders and you take your teachings from them, that it has no more purpose during Adam al That's absolutely not what we're saying. In fact, as we said, the narrations are saying the opposite. And we have other narrations that say this goes through and this is in preparation to the interrogation. And whether... You know, it's before or after, as we said, there are many narrations that we have in which Al-Bayt are there and they let go. The interrogation means that if someone has a strong wilayah, 
they will no longer be further interrogated because they have those core pieces. So they're set for Adam and Barzakh. That part is taken care of. The next phase is going to be their judgment in the afterlife. Okay, so inshallah, this part is clear. That's one. And of course, there's other narrations. I mentioned patience here. We have in some narrations that there is also patience. Patience does plays that role too. So we have different narrations on which of these entities, which of your good actions, good intentions, good traits, manifest themselves with you as you enter Adam al-Barzakh. They basically keep you company. And all of this is summarized in the narrations and the traditions, and there are countless of them that basically say and state again and again that your only companion in the grave, your only true companion that stays with you in the grave is your deeds. If, if your deeds were good, you have a good companion. So here we have a splitting up of that companion into the different act, actions and deeds. But as we said again and again, how all of this actually manifests itself to us, how we experience it once in the grave, we don't know. We have to be there to see. It's a different realm. It's a different entity. Okay? But clearly, this is a manifestation of our beliefs and our deeds, all happening in the grave. Another point that is perhaps something to keep in mind, now it's getting technical, but in case someone is interested in all of this, as we said, if you start looking into this topic, you might see some contradictory statements from different scholars or what you find in different books. That's why we're talking about this. Is that this is not, for instance, a, the, the shortcoming is not on the type of uh, the, the kind of intercession or the power or the effectiveness of the intercession. Is that if you spend time understanding the nature of certain deeds, the nature of certain beliefs. Every We believe that every act that you perform, every belief that you have, has a different function. It comes out in a different way. So if you are in Alam al-Barzakh, your actions in this world translate in a certain way. If you happen to reach the afterlife, you see that those actions will manifest in a different way. Let's say prayer, let's say fasting, let's say belief, wilaya for instance, patience. Each one of these has an effect. It, it has a different effect or impact or consequence in Adam and Barzakh and the afterlife. So it's not so much that there's a lack of intercession as the type of world it is and the nature of your deeds and how they appear, this is just not the type of system to allow for that type of intercession that we know and we refer to, and inshallah we're going to talk about, in the afterlife to take place in the Barzakh, in Adam and Barzakh. Okay? So that's one part. And then finally, and perhaps this is the most important point in all of this, is that no matter how you spin this, and no matter how you look at this, the Imams are clearly sending a warning message to all of us. Beware that you are headed into a territory where there is serious danger awaiting you. Be prepared. The alam that awaits you, alam al-barzakh, is not an easy uh, moment or not an easy phase to think that you can just get away with it because you believe and you have uh, wilayah, basically. So that's going to be easy enough. It's going to be a breeze for all of us because we have a little bit of wilayah. So the Imams are sending clear, no matter how much detail you want to get into, one thing is clear in that the 
traditions and generations of we are getting warnings that we need you to come having done enough good and be in pretty good shape to start with when you enter Alam al-Barzakh. Otherwise, as we said, some of the purposes of Alam al-Barzakh is to purify people, to get them ready for Alam al-Akhirah, so that the worst of it happens in Alam al-Barzakh. Well, how about you do enough good in this world that there is nothing to purify and nothing to make better during Alam al-Barzakh so that your Barzakh is good. And who knows how long you're staying in Barzakh. It's not something that just happens overnight and, you know, it's like a, you know, a shot in the arm and you move on. So be prepared. Don't make all your focus and your reliance only on, I, uh, I follow Ahlul Bayt therefore I will have intercession and that's, that should be good enough for me. It will help me out. No, you have to come ready with the things that we mentioned. Do you give charity? Do you help your brethren as we, we, we see in many of the uh, narrations that we have, some of those entities that manifest themselves, for instance, providing service to those who need it in the community. Well, do you play that role at all? Or are you coming with, you're someone who just spent their time, and it's amazing and it's good that you spent your time, let's say, only praying. Prayer is amazing. That's one of the pillars you need, and it will show up for you. But you were meant to play those other roles too. Did you do anything about them or you just let it be? You let it go and you neglected it, so you're going to come with a deficiency. There's a lack. You're going to need something to compensate here. So inshallah, they compensate each other. But you can't go there with only a reliance that I've done a little bit and this should be good enough. No, you have to say, I've done enough that I'm confident that I've done everything I can and I'm coming here with confidence. I've done my duty. Now there might be shortcomings, there might be sins, there might be mistakes. Inshallah, I've done enough good. Not going there thinking, knowing already that I haven't done anything. I've been neglectful and I've lived just a life of sin and mistakes, never repenting, never trying anything. And I just let it go, just reliance on, blind reliance on intercession for me. That's not enough. The, the narrations are clear that that is not enough. Okay? Then the other topic that I thought was worth mentioning or exploring quickly is, as we said, and again, the, the reason I'm mentioning it in a little bit more detail is because there might be some contention. Um, I think I mentioned it uh, at the very beginning. So here, if you see that we said people, when they're going to Alam al-Barzakh, they are going to be dealt with in a very different way. There's a lot of variance between what's happening to one person and what's happening to another person. The extremes of all of this is that there are people who are actually entering a heaven or entering a hell in Alam al-Barzakh. So you have those, those are the two extremes. A little bit less than that, you have people who are being exposed to heaven and hell, but they're not actually entering them. A little bit less than that, there are people who are not even being taken, exposed to, uh, heaven or hell, but there's an opening in their graves towards heaven or towards hell. Well, these are clearly different levels of intensity, different degrees of reward and punishment, right? So this is clear. And when we mentioned that, we said that there are multiple narrations that mention that there are a lot of people who will be ignored. We said they will be ignored. That's how we translated it. So this is one of these narrations. 
And again, the reason why I didn't you know, want to go too much into detail here is that this is not a matter of entire consensus. There's a little bit of disagreement between the scholars on what exactly this means. Okay, so the general understanding is that there are people who are not, it seems, exposed to the truth fully in this world. When the truth has not reached you fully, you're not going to be held to the same account as someone who has fully received the truth, and then they've acted on that. Either they accepted it, or accepted it partially, or not accepted it at all, or in fact fought it and defied it. So depending on what truth has reached you in the first place, you may be dealt with in a very different way. Okay, that's the general understanding of these. So there's, as we said, multiple narrations that talk about this. A lot of them are structured in this way. Okay, we have some narrations from Imam al-Waqar and some narrations from Imam al-Sadiq who talk that talk about this. So it is the one who is something that is something that is pure, that does not contain anything else within it. So the Imam is saying someone who has shown or who has a pure faith or, and so sometimes this is understood as someone who has been very tested, and this is what they've done with the test, and they've shown real faith. Mahbul iman. And the opposite. And those who have pure disbelief. They have very intense disbelief. So once again, we're coming back to those extremes, those people at, who are very good or very bad. Those are the people really undergoing the full interrogation that we talked about. Okay, and we're not talking about the very, very good people, those who are muqarrabun, for instance. The Holy Quran is very clear, the ruayat are very clear. They don't even go through any of this, those people. They go directly to the heaven of the barzakh. And inshallah, one day we'll talk a lot more about those different ranks. We're talking about people who are very good, but normal. You're very good, normal people. Or very bad, normal people. Those are the ones we're talking about. According to these narrations, the Imam is saying those who have shown that they have pure faith or who have shown to have pure lack of faith, belief and disbelief, they are really good or really bad. Those are the people who are really undergoing the full treatment so that you really see who they are and they deserve their position. Those who are really good will deserve that really good position in Barzakh and those, because this is another test. And remember what we said about those pangs of death and the moments where the soul is extracted. And then once there's zuhuq al-ruh, when you're actually dead and you're entering Adam and Barzakh, we said this is to the point where a normal human being, if we were to take it to the examples of this world, we would say you're going through trauma. So how aware and composed are you? There are people who can go through trauma and survive it. Trauma for one person is very different from trauma to another. A child and an adult will not view trauma the same way. Someone who works in an emergency room as a medical doctor and someone who has never seen you know, a wound or fresh blood from a wound in their lives are not gonna deal with trauma the same way in this world. Well, it's the same way. What kind of faith, what kind of solid belief are you bringing with you as you go through death? And what from that faith is going to remain as you go through that? So that it can actually withstand 
And we didn't go through all the narrations that talk about this. There's a lot of them. How Iblis, Satan, the evil devil, shows up as you are dying. And how he tries to seduce you even in those moments. To dupe you and trick you and distract you. To make you forget God. To make you doubt your religion. To make you doubt your faith. To, and he'll try. This is his last chance. You're leaving this world. Are you actually going to leave with a full faith or not? Well, it depends how solid you were. This is no different than you going through all sorts of stuff in this life. So, of course, someone who actually prays all their prayers all the time, they have anchored that prayer a lot more deeply in, their, in themselves as someone who prays from time to time. Same thing can be said about the Holy Quran. Same thing can be said about fasting, giving charity, helping others. How much of it have you done so that it has become part of you? So that even if you go through a trauma, even if you go through something that completely shapes you to the core, those things don't go away. Nothing that can happen is going to make you doubt those things. Okay, so this is what you leave this world with, based on all of that. So the Imam says in this narration, at the end, So as for those who are not pure in their belief, and who are not pure in their disbelief, Yulha is like they're too distracted to be concerned with them. So, to, to put that in short, we say they'll be ignored. Some have interpreted this ignored, Yulha'an, as meaning that they go in a, in a state like sleep or unawareness until the Nafkat al until this world ends with a blast in the horn. Inshallah, we're going to talk about that. And then. They are raised like everybody else in the afterlife. Okay? So that's one interpretation of this. We have another narration here. Let's look at it quickly. Again, it's not translated. Uh, just the translation is here, not the original. So, Lo'ais al-Kinasi says, and it's a long narration. I've taken out the before and after. This is a part that's relevant. So he, he asks the Imam, what will the condition, what will be the condition of those who believe in the one God, so they are muahidun, they believe that there is God, who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and He's one God, and who recognize the Prophet of Muhammad sallallahu who are Muslims, but who have committed sins, and then they die without having an Imam that they recognize, nor do they know your wilayah. Okay, so very clear. He's telling him they are believers, they are Muslims, they believe in God, they believe in the Holy Prophet, they believe in the Quran, but they did not know what an Imam is. And they did not leave this world with what we consider to be al-wilayah, what we refer to all of this as al-wilayah. So the Imam answered him, As for those, they will be in their hole, so in their grave, in their hole, never leaving it. Why? So this is kind of a compliment. We would need the full uh, narration here to understand. But the Imam had talked about how there are people who are taken out of their graves but we're not talking about the body. The body is in the grave. The souls, as we said, there is a link between the soul and the location of the grave. By default, the soul should stay near where the grave is, in a spiritual realm, not physically close. Okay, but there's a link there. In this narration, the Imam is explaining that those who are very good are taken from those locations of their graves elsewhere to be with others who are good like them. And we have in many narrations, this is why the salam, right? Where all the souls of the good gather. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is a geographic location. The geographic location has a link to that spiritual realm. 
that spiritual dimension. Okay, and we have the same thing on the on the uh, location of those who are evil and who are bad. So they're taken out from where those souls are connected to go be with those other ones who are evil with them. So like to like, they're all put together. And the Imam says those who are good, they meet each other. You meet people you did not know because you have a link with them through belief. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to meet them. Those who are like you in belief, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you get acquainted with them. They meet each other and they meet each other, the Imam says, on the way and there. And they are brought back. So as opposed to those, the Imam is now saying, there are people who never leave that. that. That's why we said there's different levels, different permissions. Depending on how good you are, you're given a lot more permission. And how bad you are, you're going through a lot more or a lot less. Bad and good. So the Imam says, so those who are, they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they believe in the Holy Prophet, they believe in this religion, they're going there, they don't have a lot of great sins, but they did not know the Imam, they did not know what Hulaya is. So the Imam says, as for those, they will be in their hole, never leaving it. That's the, it's in reaction to that. Those among them who had good deeds and who did not show any enmity, so they did not show any hatred, they were not bad people against anyone. An opening shall be made towards paradise and its smell will fill his grave until the day of judgment. Okay. When he will meet God, who will hold him accountable for his virtues and misdeeds, and then the outcome will be either toward heaven or hell. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge them based on their actions. Those are left to the judgment of God. And this is a, a key important passage. There are people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always says in the Quran, they are left to the judgment of God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decide. We can't decide. Even based on what we know, the Quran is not really talking to us about them. The Quran is explicit when someone knows the truth and rejects it, or someone knows the truth and accepts it. As for the others, it's always ambiguous. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be the one who decides how to deal with them. They are left to the judgment of God. Then he added, so the Imam added, and so God will also do with the weak. So this is a, an important term in the Quran when it talks about the mustadafid. What does it mean? Does it mean those who are physically weak? If you go back to the traditions and narrations, no, it's not talking about those. It's talking about any human being who is not in a state where they are fully in control of themselves. They don't have all the faculties. It may apply to someone who is kind of physically imposed upon, but it, it goes way beyond that. The salat here are people who are under oppression, under tyranny, people who cannot be like they would be if they were free. Okay, so that's the general principle when you see with the word mustalaf in the Quran. So he says, and God will also do the same thing with the weak, the mustalafin, the mentally incompetent, the children who have not reached maturity, and the narration continues. So here's where the Imam is saying, your kind, these are people are left to Allah ta'ala. In Adam al-Barzakh, Allah will not punish them. Allah ta'ala here, he's, the Imam is saying, there's an opening in their graves from which they smell the the, the odors, the perfumes of the fragrance of paradise. And so they spend their time in Barzakh in this state until Alam al Akhara, until the afterlife, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be the one who judges one way or another. 
So the conclusion of all of this, and here I can ask you, I, I had put it aside depending on the time we have. I, I translated a sermon from Imam Ali salam in which he talks about death and with a lot of allusions to Alam al-Barzakh, but the majority of it is more of a, you know, warnings and reminders for us. So I'll see if you guys are interested or not. It might take us 10, 15 minutes to go through the full sermon if we want to read it quickly without much uh, commentary, just so that you're aware. So keep it in mind, I'll ask you at the end. In conclusion, so that we can wrap this topic up completely, okay, so that we move on to the next topic. The conclusion of all of this, the quick reminders, the quick highlights from all of this. The first one is that if we look at Alam al-Barzakh and what is at stake, what is at play, the difference between it and Alam al-Akhar, and inshallah we're going to get into the details of Alam al-Akhar in the next weeks, and you will see that very clearly. Alam al-Barzakh has much more to do with the big items of belief, the big tenets, not the details. The details, every iota, every minutia of action or intention or thought, anything you do, anything you think about, all of that, you will be held accountable for it in the afterlife. Alam al-Barzakh is not meant for that. Alam al-Barzakh is meant for the big items of belief and the big items of action. Did you pray or not? They're not going to ask you, did you pray every single prayer? Every single day, did you pray this Salat al-Subh or not? Did you pray this Salat al-Dhuhr or not? This will be the afterlife. Alam al-Barzakh, not yet. Did you pray? Were you of those who prayed? Generally, were you of those who prayed? Were you of those who fasted? Were you of those who, who recited the Qur'an? Generally speaking. And you need to be able to answer. Answer in the face of these angels that are described as causing trauma when you see them and when you're in their presence, because that's what they're meant to do. Can you keep your faith? Can you keep your belief? Or is it shaky? That's what's meant. what it's meant to test. If you can show that you were generally of that group, then your alam al-barzakh and your existence in barzakh will be of that type. That's what it's meant for. Okay? So this is something to keep in mind, that alam al-barzakh is, is meant for the high-level belief items and the high-level teachings, practical teachings of Islam, not the details. The details, everything's to the afterlife. The second point is that it does not take away from anything about the point we made, which is your ability to act ends the moment you leave this world. So in this way, it is no different. You are stuck with whatever you put in this world, whether you are an Alam al-Barzakh or Alam al-Akhirah. You have no other opportunities to act once you have reached the moment of death. So this is a key takeaway that inshallah is clear. If you are able to leave good things behind from which you continue to benefit in Alam al-Barzakh, that's different. You're no longer acting, but you did something so good and you left it in the world and it continues to have a good benefit. Human beings can still benefit from that which you left in the world. Then when you are in your Alam al-Barzakh, you are going to continue to benefit from that which you left behind. 
this becomes completely different in the afterlife because they're completely disconnected. When you are in Alam al-Barzakh, there are still human beings benefiting or being harmed by whatever you put in this world. So, this is also something if you want to, you know, if, if I can present it this different way, I would say be strategic. Don't just work for the immediate. There are things you do, those are great. When you pray all alone in your room and no one knows, that is absolutely great. But if you understand how this world works and how Al-Barzakh works and how the afterlife works, be strategic in that you also have things that if there are gaps and there are deficiencies and there are lacks in those things which you did and maybe you know you cannot rely on them 100%, who amongst us can say all my prayers are perfect? And all of my fasting is perfect. And all of my charity and zakah and khums are perfect. And all of my help to others is perfect. I'm, I'm good. I don't need anything else. No one can say that. So what do you need? You need to leave good things behind in this world. So that when you're gone, those things continue. You invest in them and they keep bringing you revenue when you're done. And you've left this world. And this is the insistence on raising the children. Because that means you kept your descendants going on a straight path. You have saved people so much trouble and so much energy by making sure that they are good, that their parents are good, that their ancestors are good, because it's so much easier to continue on the path of good. You're raised in a good family, in a good community, in a good society. Imagine the difference between that and someone who has to go against the current and find the guidance on their own. And it's going to be hit and miss. And that's why you get so much reward for raising good children who will most likely remember you and who will pray for you. They will appreciate the sacrifices you made, the energy you put in, you left in, in this world, so that when they finally open their eyes and they're mature, they are realizing what you did so that they are good people. And they will pray for you. And those prayers will reach you. That's why you are asked to build mosques and places of worship. You're asked to spread knowledge, write a book, give sermons, give speeches, give lectures, spread good in this world, you know, make infographs, create YouTube videos, do whatever you can. Spread the knowledge and spread the good. Do things that people remember you as having done good. Even if they don't know it was you. There's a good in the world that came from someone. And sometimes, if it's done for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with sincere intentions, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses that little bit that you put in and it grows and it multiplies and it amplifies. And right now it's affecting 10 people. In 200 years, it might be affecting a million. You don't know. And all of that reward is coming back to you. And this is why there's such an insistence, for instance, on the position, on the rank of a scholar. Because the work that they're doing is affecting that many more people. They're not only concerned with themselves. They are participating in influencing a lot of people. So whatever is happening later, they are getting a share of that reward. And it comes with a responsibility. Every time they make a mistake or they deviate, then of course, if they led people astray, then they are also responsible for leading people astray. Okay, that's everything in life. But as we said, the point in all of this is 
Do not forget that there is a connection between this world and Alam al-Barzakh. You cannot leave this world without having thought about your existence in the next realm. And as we said, we don't know how long it will last. If we're going to exist in that, if you live in this world 80 years or 120 years and, or 200 or 500 years, and then you're going to spend 2 million years in Alam al-Barzakh, I think you need to think about what's happening in Alam al-Barzakh and what have you done specifically for Alam al-Barzakh in addition to you know, the things that you have done just to go there ready and ready for the afterlife. What else have you done? So that, that goodness keeps coming to you while you're there. So that others remember you and pray for you and gift you and so on and so forth. The other point that we mentioned is that do also think about the fact that the variety the variance, as they say in, in the world of business and math, the variance is very great. It's not like everyone is going to be lumped into kind of two, only two possible outcomes. Everybody's going to go this room or that room. No, no. There is a huge variance in the permissions you are given, the accesses you are given, the experiences you are given, and both sides. It's not like everything is reduced Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, this is one thing that he doesn't allow. He says, how can we deal with or treat darkness and light in the same way? How can we treat uh, ignorance and knowledge in the same way? This is in the Quran. So, of course, two people where one person has done a little bit more effort, a little bit more energy, a little bit more sincerity is going to be seeing and experiencing that little bit more than the other. This is not lost. So, whatever you're doing, you're doing for yourself. It's only improving you, improving the permissions you have, improving the state you're in. Okay, so that's why we need to remember there is a great variance. And it will be too late the moment you reach that. Okay, so don't be of those that regret again and again as we saw in the Quran. One way to understand all of this, I mentioned it a couple of times, but just to wrap all of this up, a lot seems to be happening in Alam al-Barzakh. It's difficult to understand. Is it physical? Is it not physical? We said there are bodies, but it's a spiritual world. Perhaps one way to understand all of this in a summary format is to say that Alam al-Barzakh is like being in a state of dream. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself connected us back to the world of sleeping in the Quran, there is perhaps a reason for that. And we actually have that in some narrations where the Imams tell us that it is as though you are sleeping and dreaming. When, while you are in a state of sleeping and dreaming, you may not realize that you're asleep. It seems very real to you. It's only when you wake up that you realize, and sometimes you even have doubts. It was so real that you're not even sure. Was it a dream or did this really happen? Okay, so while you're in it, well, one way to understand everything happening there is to say it's like you're in a state of dreaming. And that's enough. The effect of it is still happening. It's one type of existence. We're not saying it's the same sleep that we are sleeping now because the detachment between the body and the soul has taken place. But it is like. So is there a body? Yes, there's a body. Is it physical? No. Are things happening? Of course. Are you feeling them? Are you experiencing them? Yes. Is it physical and material? No. That's all you need. Everything else can fall into place after that. Okay, so that's one way to kind of just have an analogy what this may look like in this world. 
A point to keep in mind is that if you look at Alam and Barzakh, whether you look at the punishment and the torture and the pain and the discomfort, or you look at the pleasure, the delight, the bliss on both sides, the degree of intensity is a lot more than anything we can experience in this life. So this is a rule we have to keep in mind. And, you know, if I can just quickly, as a footnote or between two brackets, to mention that this has to do with the fact that it's all happening in a spiritual world. Because matter is limited. When things happen to you, and they're happening to your body, your body only is limited or can cope with, deal with, things that your nervous system can deal with. You're limited by that. In a spiritual realm, in a spiritual dimension, you're no longer bound by what your nervous system can deal with. Okay? And that's why you start understanding, how you start understanding that what you're making the soul undergo can be a lot more intense, both in pleasure and in pain, than anything your body will ever handle in this world. Okay? When we compare anything happening in this world, so now I'm not talking about you being alive, I'm talking about this whole realm of existence, including Adam and Garza. When you compare it to the afterlife, then that's insignificant. And the amount, the degree, the intensity of pleasure and pain is also incomparable. What happens in Alam al-Barzakh, as intense as it is compared to Alam al-Dunya and our world, it's nothing compared to the afterlife. And this is clear in the verses of the Quran, as we saw. When it talks about, you know, here being a minor humiliation and a minor torture and a minor punishment, and the true one is the afterlife. On both sides, it says the life, the life is the afterlife. Here, this is not even a life. You're not even really fully alive. You know, when you study biology, they tell you, when you study a virus, they tell you we're not sure, do we classify it as a living entity or as an inanimate dead entity? Because viruses are not alive on their own. They have to take over a, uh, an entity that has life and they become alive. And they become, they act. They have agency. They do something only as part of another entity, like a bacteria, like a cell, like an organism. But if you take it out, it continues to exist indefinitely. You can break them in space, you can uh, you know, freeze them, nothing happens to the virus in this way. It can exist forever on its own, nothing, nothing happens. Because it's not alive. It only becomes, okay, so the same thing can be said here, that it's a state in between, okay? The last point is that, inshallah, at the end of all of this, the two big takeaways that we take, the first one is that we need to prepare. You cannot know all of this and then do nothing about it. This is all a call to action. This is all equals, it needs to translate into action. So based on everything we said, inshallah, we touched on enough things that you on your own know where you need to go and act. But there's a need for action. This is not just an accumulation of knowledge. It's not just, let's understand what Islam says about this and it stops. If this is what Islam says about Adam and Barzakh, but there's a point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made in the Holy Quran that the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt have made in their narrations to present things in this way. 
to present things in either a very attractive way, so that you actually do something to go get it. It's so delightful and it's so attractive that you cannot just ignore it. Or in a way that is so fearsome, so scary, so horrible, that you have to do something to make sure this doesn't happen to you. This is clear from the verses of the Quran, from the narrations that we saw, and this is where we're only still talking about Adam and Barzah. We haven't talked about the afterlife. So all of this, the point from all of this is not just to know. Knowing is, is great. We need to match the actions to knowing. Okay? Not just knowing. That's first point. The second point is, and this one it can be very difficult, but something to keep in mind and remind yourselves of, and myself of, all the time, is to try to find the right balance. So there's a first level of balance, which is between fear and hope. We have in our narrations that the true believer, the heart of the true believer, has an equal amount of fear and hope. You cannot have so much fear that it completely paralyzes and depresses you. But you also cannot have so much hope that you go to the afterlife or you go to Adam and Barzakh just with hope. This is an empty hope. If you had more fear, you would have probably acted more. But you just went there with hope. You haven't done anything else. You need an equal amount of both. And finding the equal amount is probably not going to be, uh, as, as they say, a perfect science, nor is it going to be something constant. You will have moments where you will have a lot more fear, and you will have moments where you'll have a lot more hope. But generally speaking, as a believer, you have to go between the two. You have to, on the one side, remember your shortcomings, your mistakes, your sins. And so this brings fear into you, and hopefully action. And you have to remember, despite all of this, there is the mercy of God. And there is the forgiveness of God. And it's always there. I just need to turn towards it. But I can't turn towards it and rely on it without recognizing that there are shortcomings and I need to fix them. Okay? So this is one. The second one is that now the whole theme or topic that we've been focusing on is the topic of the afterlife. In these couple of lectures, it's been on the Alam al-Barzakh, but we've started talking a lot more in depth about death. And inshallah, this is going to continue. We're going to start focusing a lot more on, so what happens next? What does the afterlife, what happens to this world? What happens in the afterlife? What are those big milestones? What's the sequence of events happening there? So we're not done with the topic of the afterlife. In fact, that's going to be our entire focus for a number of lectures to come. So here's where we need to find the balance once again. We've put aside talking about how we're supposed to act in this world. And a lot of what we do has a afterlife dimension, have, has a manifestation, a representation, a meaning, a significance for the afterlife. Our religion does not allow for a human being, does not want a human being to be only and only looking at the afterlife. Our religion wants us to look at the afterlife through this life. You have to turn this life into your opportunities to move into the afterlife. You cannot just say, I will only work for the afterlife. Ultimately, that's what you are doing. And that's, you know, you've reached the perfection. If you are able to, that everything that you do, 
everything you touch, everything you think about, everything you perform in this world, you've actually been able to make it into a means to the end, to the ultimate end, which is the afterlife. Your life is a process of getting there. The more you know and the more you work on yourself, the more you start seeing that everything you have, every moment you have, every dollar you have, every you know, piece of health that you have, every organ that you have, everything that you've been given, every relationship that you have, is supposed to be used for the afterlife. How much of that can you turn into the afterlife? That's up to you. But the meaning of all of this is not to say, I will only look at the afterlife. No, you have to look at this world and use this world and live in this world and take advantage of it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have created the good things of this world, inshallah, we're going to talk about that, for those who are believers. The things that are good in this life, they've been created for the believers, but they will be exclusively for them in the afterlife. In the afterlife, no one else will share it with them. In this world, everybody shares those things that are good and those things that are bad. Because they're not exclusively to them. They're for everyone to enjoy as opportunities for the afterlife. So we're not saying you prevent yourself from, you know, no one's going to work, no one's going to study, no one is going to do anything that builds this life, that builds a community, that builds a society, that makes humanity move forward. In fact, that's what you're supposed to do. But maybe someone else, they're trying to do that so that people say this was a great scientist. And they have a statue, and they have a street named after them, or a university campus, or so on and so forth. You're doing it because you have a higher, transcendental belief and value. You believe that God created you to do that. It just goes without saying that this is how everybody's supposed to be. So when you're doing it, you have a lofty, noble reason for doing it. But you still do it, and you do it better, and you will have a lot more drive than the next person who's doing it, and their entire outlook is based on the material life that they're living. Okay, so I'm going to stop here, and I'm thinking that I'm going to stop entirely. We're not going to go through the sermon. Maybe we'll leave it to next time, because I think it does require a bit of uh, going through. It's a few pages long, perhaps three pages long, if I want to read it quickly. So I'm going to leave it to another time. If people say, please read it, and uh, they want to hear it. Otherwise, I can just reference it. It's Sermon 220 from Najil Balagha. So unfortunately, I haven't seen really good translations of Najil Balagha. But generally speaking, the, if you find the translations of Sermon 220, that's a, the sermon that I was going to go through quickly to kind of wrap up the topic, but it would require a, a little bit of time. I don't want to take too long on this. So we'll stop here. This is the end of the uh, lecture part. Um, if there are any questions, concerns, comments, online or in person, please don't hesitate to share them. Uh, and for the time being, Okay, so if there are any questions, concerns, comments on Zoom from the brothers, sisters, don't hesitate to write them. Yeah. I heard from uh, some people, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but they say not all Nahjur Balagha is uh, authentic. 
Is that true? That comes to a discussion of authenticity. So the issue with authenticity is that the scholars themselves are not going to all be in agreement on every single issue of the, uh, you know, this world or the science of Jarh and Ta'deel or where do you consider Arwaya authentic and where do you consider Arwaya non-authentic. We have scholars who are much more rigorous. They're much more strict on what they consider a uh, authentic Arwaya. So in other words, you know, the, but let's put the Arwayat in three categories very quickly. You have Ruwayat that everybody's going to say, these are 100% unreliable. The, the Ruwayat, when you read it, it has mistakes. It contradicts basic core teachings of the Qur'an. Uh, the people who narrated the Ruwayat are liars. You know, when you go through that, or the Ruwayat did not appear any, in any of the early collections of Hadith. And then suddenly it appears, you know, eight centuries later after the Holy Prophet, for instance, or the Imams. You put all of these together and you say, everybody agrees, this is an inauthentic, untrustworthy narration. No one, everybody agrees with that. Those are easy. On the other side, the main criteria for accepting Arawaya, what is it? So of course, goes without saying, does it contradict the Quran or not? Okay, let's say you have Arawaya, does it contradict the Quran? There's nothing basically, fundamentally wrong, illogical about the Ruwaya. It's It remains in the realm of the possible. Then you add Tawatur. So what's Tawatur? Tawatur is that you have enough people independent from each other who have come to you to tell you about something to the point where you feel that you can rely on it. Example, we're sitting here Someone just opens the door now and says, I don't know, let, let's take something out of the ordinary. Because not all the ruwayat are about stuff that's out of the ordinary, right? Some of it is, you know, someone may come and say, there's an accident and the road is blocked. Thank you. One person came. You don't know who this person is. There is, in your mind, oh, maybe there's a 20% chance, 5% chance, depending on you and me, okay? We may have a different reliability on this, but none of us will say 100% it must be true. But the likelihood now that you know that there is a blockage on the road because there's an accident has just increased. If you have three people who come and tell you this, they don't know each other, uh, you go outside and you see someone walking by, unrelated to the first person, and you tell them, are you coming from there? Yes. Is the road blocked? Yes, it is blocked. But now you have two. You have three, you have five people repeating the incident. The incident may be only 80% repeated, and there's 20% variance. Uh, here you have to start seeing, okay, there's not an agreement on all the details, but there's 80% of it that is agreed upon. Okay, so that's more likely, much more likely that this part is true. It doesn't mean that the 20% is necessarily a lie. Maybe one person saw it 20 minutes ago and the other one just saw it now and something changed. You have to take all of that into consideration and then at the end say, but there's still enough people who are independent. It's not like it's a group of five people who just walk together and they might have agreed to lie to us and tell us, by the way, the road is closed. The road is blocked. 
If that's the case, we say that's not five independent reports. That's one report. Because all of them are working together, maybe. So when they go to the narrations and they say we want to see how authentic they are, the most important criteria that everybody is looking at is usually, can I establish tawatur or not? Can I reach a point where I have enough in, uh, independent sources that I can rely on? So it's not like any of them are known to be liars, or none of them are known to be people who are very forgetful. They're scholars. People relied on them in their time. They wrote books, for instance, and they left these in the books. So all of that is kind of the introduction. The reason I'm saying it, and there's a lot more that we can say. As we said, there's that one, there's a group now of narrations that, as we said, you can right away say these are not authentic. And now you have a group of narrations that you can apply this main criteria to and say, I have enough independent sources validating, corroborating this information that I can safely assume that it is true, or a large percent of it is true. So what's left? What's left is everything in between. So here is where the scholars are going to come and add to their criteria. Some of them, they're going to use criteria that is a lot more rigorous. And they're going to say, you have to prove to me that this is something that was said, that was said at that time, that was contained in that book, and this, those words that were said. So that's one extreme. On the other extreme, you'll have scholars who say, so long as I'm not 100% sure that this is a fabrication or a lie, I'm going to keep it into consideration and most likely use it as it's true. I have no reason to doubt everything that comes to me. Give me a reason to doubt it, that's different. Show me that one of the narrators was a liar. He was untrustworthy. The book that you're giving me did not exist and then it appeared centuries later, that's different. But if that's not the case, then generally speaking, by default, do you see the difference? So the first one, by default, I reject everything until you show to me that it is 100% true or close to, very high probability of truth. The second one is going to say, no, by default, I accept everything until proven otherwise. And that's why the same narration, one scholar will say, I accept it, because the foundations are different. One of them will say, I accept it. The other one is going to say, I reject it. So just accept or reject may not be, if you want to get into the details, it's not going to be useful to you. You need to know you are rejecting it based on what, or you are accepting it based on what. Once you know that, then you know better how to deal with it. Okay? So all of that said, when we go back to Najin Banana, yes, the scholars who are a little bit more strict, they will say there are many sermons in Najin Banana that are not considered by their standards 100% authentic. In the sense that I cannot show that this was actually said by Imam Ayyadissah. That's it. So that's different from saying that we know for sure that this is a fabrication. So if you go to the scholars who are more rigorous, yes. That's it. There are recently amazing works that have been done where they've taken Najil Balada. So we need to go to the story of Najul Balad first. That requires its own lectures on how it was put together. When the compiler of Najul Balad put it together, what was the intent? It was not meant to be 
a book of narrations. So for instance, if you go to a book like Tuhaf al-Uqul, or a book like Al-Kafi, or a book like Al-Bihar, or a book like Sahih al-Bukhari, or Sahih Muslim, what's the point of these books? The point of these books is to take the religious narrations and to tell people this is the religion. You have the Holy Quran and you have the narrations that are obligatory to be followed. Your religion must come from here. End of story. Okay? The compiler of Nahj al-Balara, he called it Nahj al-Balara, and he wrote this book for one main reason, before saying that these are the traditions that you're going to use to build your religion on. He's not trying to do that. He is trying to say, there is no one who is more eloquent in speech than Imam Ali And I will show it to you, and I will show it to you based on my own criteria, and he was a specialist in that field. And so I will rank the sermons of Nahj al-Balara by level of eloquence. Eloquence is a science, al-Balara is a science that you study. He said, I'm gonna look at the available content I have from, Nahj, from the, the sayings of Imam Ali and the writings of Imam Ali not from the angle of how authentic they are, or I'm looking at them from how eloquent they are. And I'm going to say sermon number one equals the most eloquent words we have from Nahj al-Balara, from Imam Ali And sermon number two is the second most eloquent you know, piece of wording that we have from Imam Ali and so on. That's what he tried to do in the book. It just so happens that when people started reading this, they couldn't believe that he, he has done a magnificent effort of going through so much material, and there are so many studies to say, you know, how many books he went through, how many treaties he had, and how he put them together, and then his own skill at confidently saying, this is how I rank them, okay? And so when people look at Najib Balagh, they say clearly, you know, as they always repeat and say, uh, famous words in Islam, well known, that there are no words in the human language that match the eloquence of the words of Imam Ali So they are less than the words of the Creator, but certainly superior to the words, the words of the created, of human beings. Human beings could never put language in this way and present it in this way. Okay, this is this was the kind of punchline. This is what you get when you go through Najib Barada. To see whether Nahj al is all authentic or not, you have to add another layer. Because that was not the intent initially. It has become, because it saves you so much time, and there are so many people who know it, this sermon that I was going to read, Sermon 220, it's repeated in at least three very important sources uh, in the Sunni school and in the Shia school. So, I know for a fact that this would be an authentic sermon. But if I were to say it is available in this book and that book, people don't know those books. The majority of people, unless you're a scholar and you've studied, you know those books. Other people don't know, okay, so I don't know what that, who that author is or what that book is. But when I say it's from Najib Balala, it saves everybody time. Because now everybody knows Najib Balala. It's become that popular. And so people will continue to refer to Najib Balala. But if you want to discuss the authenticity, you have to add, add another layer. And this is where I said there's amazing work that has happened over the past little while 
where projects have been done to go through all of Najm Balagha and bring back, explain for every one of these servants, where did they come from? Where did he take them? And is it actually authentic or not? Because there were a lot of cheap claims made that most of it is not authentic. No, that's not true. In fact, the majority of it is very authentic. And now that the work is done, it's multiple volumes. A lot, for instance, of the sermons of Nahj al-Balagha, they're in fact not full sermons. Imam Ali would say a sermon, it's a long sermon. That was, well, the part that is documented from it is a long sermon. The author of Nahj al-Balagha may split it into four parts. And he puts one, because the sermon talks about four different topics. And so he put one here, he's talking about, you know, the aftermath of the war, Safin with Muawiyah. Here he's talking about the topic of death. Here he's talking about the Holy Prophet and his history and life of the Holy Prophet. These become three different sermons in Najibullah. But because of this work, now we know that all of this was actually one sermon in Najibullah, and you can read it as one. And then you see it differently. Or the sayings, the short sayings from Imam Ali Salam. Some of these were all together. You may have, you know, 100 or 50 of the short sayings in one place. You read uh, the wasiyah, the, the, the advice Imam Ali alayhi salam gives to Kumail, there's a whole lot of it that you find in the sayings of Imam Ali on their own at the end. The last part of Nahj al are the short sayings of Nahj al So if you read the sermons of Nahj al you see a lot of these are combined. The Imam is just talking. He's explaining to Kumail, you know, the uh, Kumail ibn Ziyad, he's explaining to him the worth of knowledge, for instance. Well, there's a lot of sayings. This was split up into split up into parts of sayings, much smaller sentences, statements that you take. Inshallah, this answers the, the, the question. But yeah, the sermon 220 is a is a is a good sermon, authentic and good. No, I believe all of them. It's just yeah. uh, there was knowledgeable like Shia men that actually rejected them, and I was shocked. I'm like, really? Like, and then uh, I started wondering, like. Yeah, so there might be specific sermons, and for those we have to study them one by one to say, you know, but just like a blanket statement to say, therefore, if it's a Najib Balagha, let's just put it aside now. That no, you, you would be taking out such a valuable treasure just because there might be a couple of sermons in there where you can't establish their authenticity. You're just, as they say, you're throwing the baby with the, the water, uh, the tub water or the... Anyways, okay, I have a question here, then I'll come back. I think you had a question. No? Okay. Okay, so there is a question here. What if someone does something bad, but in a good way? For example, when you, I guess, throw, when you throw the Qur'an, but only so that all of the good people, such as the Imams, Prophets, and Sayyidah, will they go? What about when someone does something bad but with good intentions? Would they receive sins or good deeds? Okay, so this is a, a complicated answer and it shouldn't be an answer that we give just as a matter of principle. Okay, depending on what it is, we can see is this the kind of thing that is relative or absolute? And in Islam, generally speaking, we have a lot of absolutes. The relatives we have general rules for the relatives. If you are under duress, if you are forced, there are things that trump other things. Human life is going to trump, for instance, eating or not eating halal haram. So if it means, if the choice is between 
I die or I eat haram, then Islam says, no, eat haram to preserve your life. In this case, life trumps eating haram. It becomes more important. There is a hierarchy. But generally speaking, the way the question is worded, I feel like it's more, you know, you know that this is something wrong that you're doing. You know that this is a sin. Well, the sin is going to remain a sin. So this is where, you know, that's the big question of does the end justify the means? So if you know that the outcome, the ultimate intention that you're establishing, you're trying to establish, may be possible by doing a sin. No, Islam says you're not allowed to do the sin. That's why it's a sin. You're supposed to act in a clean way. You're supposed to act in a good way. And if you study the lives of Ahl-Bayt, this is usually where, where it gets nebulous and when or where it gets more difficult and more practical is when all of this is applied to the realm of uh, you know, political action and social action. This is where it becomes very difficult to act in a completely clean way. The political world, the social world, is not always a very clean world. And sometimes you have to sink to that level. It's very clear to you that if I want to get involved in certain projects, in certain realms and types of activities, I have to do things in a certain way. And that's why we're saying, generally speaking, our religion does not accept that. It says that regardless of what you're trying to establish, you're not allowed to do it through sin. And if you study, for instance, the life of Imam Ali salam, you will see, for instance, the trickery and the means that Muawiyah, someone like Muawiyah, might use to get to his ultimate end, and how Imam Ali knows all of this, and he keeps saying in his sermons in Najib Baraga and elsewhere, he tells his companions and his people, he tells them he is not wiser or more intelligent than I am. He doesn't know trickery more than I am. But I have things preventing me from acting in that way. I follow the teachings of Allah, so I will never sink to the level of performing a sin to reach something good. To lying to get there, to stealing to get there, to cheating to get there. Islam rejects that. So at the end of the day, your work may look like it's tenfold more difficult for the type of end that you're trying to achieve than someone else because you're doing it in a clean way and in a good way. But that's part of it. That means that you are contributing to the good and establishing a good system. This is how everybody is supposed to work and everybody knows this is how they're supposed to work. The only caveat that I would add to this is that also Islam does not allow for you to act innocently and naively. You cannot act in a way that I will be so clean and so good and so perfect, but in a way that allows all the others to take full advantage of me. And this is why the question, the manner in which it's said, I find it very problematic, because so long as you don't apply it to specific situations, you can't really say, here is where Islam says there is a compromise, and here, no, there's absolutely no compromise. It depends on, there are things that these are your absolutes, and here's your relatives. What's at stake here? It's between what and what? What are the two priorities, and which one is more important than the other, according to Islam? 
And are these are these both negotiable priorities, or is one of them a non-negotiable? And in that case, that's it, it's over. And you would have in the lives of the Imams, for instance, I'll, I'll end with this, inshallah, to answer the question. They would come, for instance, to certain, some of the Imams, and they would tell them, in the time of Imam al-Rida, Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadr, this happened a lot, where you have people coming to the Imams, it happened even in the Saqif of Imam Ali السلام, where Abu Sufyan came to him and he told him. But this happened a lot with the other Imams too. They would tell them, you know, just work with me. Put your hand in mine and we can work together. And these are not people that the Imam wants to associate with. Not because he doesn't want to work towards that end, but because he knows that those people are not going to go there and reach that end in a clean way. It's going to be through the trickery and the cheating and the sinning and the, all the things that the Imam... What's the point of reaching the end if the way to get there was all wrong? This is completely rejected by Islam. The point of, let's say, the fight, the point of the resistance to the oppression, it's not the end result of who wins and who, who's killed and who's not at the end. Or what does it look like in the end? It's how did we get there too? When Imam they 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 questioned the fact that he wanted to pray in the battle. There was a questioning of the Imam that, you know, we're in the middle of the battle and Imam wants to pray. He wants to perform the prayer. They questioned him that maybe this is not the right time to do it. You know, this is a time of war and, and who is going to teach Imam Ali the strategy of war? It's not that he does not know that. But his answer was absolutely amazing. He tells them are we not, are we fighting them about anything else except this prayer? So how do you want me to sacrifice this prayer when the end result, what we're really fighting them about is the true significance of this prayer? And this is the difference between us and them. That they are willing to let go and compromise and sacrifice anything. There is no real values and no significance and things with absolute meanings. And we today live in a world where everything is relative. And there are no absolutes. And everything goes. Right? This is, this is a contentious issue in the postmodern world. Inshallah, one day we'll talk about that. Where there are no more any absolutes. And this is part of why there might be a clash between someone who has values and someone who has values that are only about there are no values. It becomes a clash. And so you need to know where you stand and how do you deal with that kind of, of environment or that kind of thinking. Anyways, inshallah this was a, a satisfying answer. Yeah. There's a question on the live. Okay. So uh, from, uh, from a girl that says, uh, if someone has done a sin and feels guilt about it, is there a specific way or action to show Allah that we have repented or is the guilt in one's heart enough? So the question is, if someone has performed a, committed a sin or sins or the same sin multiple times and they want to repent, is there a specific way to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we have actually repented? Is it enough? Or is, to... it, or is, it, uh, or is the guilt in one's heart enough? Yeah, so, or, or if the guilt is enough uh, that you feel in your heart. Short answer to this is it depends on the type of sin it is. 
So there are types of sins that it's really between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for those types of sins, you need to, the repentance in the heart is only sufficient for something that you've done and there is nothing to be fixed in the outside world. You're someone who has jealousy, you feel jealousy and envy towards people. This is something you need to fix internally with yourself and between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So your repentance is one step, but you need to fix that and work on yourself. Discipline yourself, find ways to deal with that spiritual disease that you have. That's one. But the moment you get to things like fasting and prayer, or someone who knows that they have done things that they're not supposed to do, it's not just enough to say, I've repented and that's enough. You need to fix those. There are things, it's kind of, kind of on the negative. You've eaten a food that you're not supposed to eat. You've drank something you're not supposed to drink. You've smoked something you're not supposed to smoke. Well, how do you fix that? If you want to go far, you go to, you know what, Imam Ali talks about this, the six level, levels of, or the six conditions of, of asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness. He says if you've eaten a lot of haram in your life, then your forgiveness looks like someone. So if you, you know, you, you've eaten from money that is haram. You know that you've engaged in activities that are haram, that are giving you money, and you're eating from that money. Imam Ali says, you have to fast long enough to feel confident that the meat that built on your body melts away. Okay, that's taking the forgiveness to the fixing. You want to be convinced that you've actually fixed the mistake. Okay, but I doubt and I think that the question is, I'm not saying that this is always the type of sin that it is. So in certain cases you say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you repent with the intention of never going back to the sin. If it's the type of sin that you didn't pray, it's not enough to say, and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me, and I will start praying from now on. Okay, that's good, you're still missing a piece. The peace, the general rule for all sins is you need to try to fix it. In the case of missing prayers, you have to go and pray them. How many prayers do you estimate that you missed? Create yourself a schedule and say over the next year or two or three or ten, I will pray all those prayers that I missed. At least you're showing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the question was worded. You want to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Show Him. You created a plan that is realistic, that you can do, if you have 10 years of prayer to do, you're probably not going to be able to pray them back in 3 months. But you could pray them back in 10 years. You all, all you need to do is for every prayer that is obligatory, you pray one more that is qala. If you do that, for every day that you do that, you've just prayed a full missed day of prayers. So if you do that for a year, you repeated that for, you've now caught up yourself one year. Or if you're going to be alive for 30 more years, 50 more years, 100 more years in this world, all you need to do is every obligatory prayer. Pray one like it with the intention of doing qada, fixing, catching up. Because in certain cases you're going to say, I'm not sure if I prayed it or not. Well, do it as a precaution. But in the cases that you are sure, don't do anything else that's mustahab. Focus on the ones that are wajib. 
If you've missed prayer, if you've missed fasting, if you've made oaths with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that if He helps you and you are successful in, you know, passing your grade and getting your job and getting the promotion and being successful in the business, that you will give 10% of this to Sadaqah and that you will recite the Quran once and that you will go to the masjid or so on and so forth. You have to go fix those. Everything that you consider to be wronging someone else, you need to fix that between you and that person. It's not enough to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as, as we have in many of the narrations, He will let go of His right, but He will not let go of the right of others. If you've wronged someone, if you've taken what's theirs, you need to give it back. If you've broken something, you fix it for them, you replace it for them. If you've talked behind people's backs, you go and ask them to forgive you because you said so and so, and so on and so forth. These are the rights of others. So it depends on the type of sin that it is, the type of mistake that it is. You have to fix it in a way that you feel you have fixed it. The things that are only between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you, and the fixing is simply a matter of making a decision that from now on my life is going to be in this way and not that, that's enough. But all the other examples that we gave, where as our scholars categorize them, they say they, there is the right of Allah. This is just between you and Allah. Your right and the right of Allah. For instance, when you pray, it doesn't affect anyone else. But it does affect your relationship with God. God will be quick to forgive those. But show Him that you're trying to do something about it. But then there are the rights of the others. If what you're talking about is you feel you have wronged others, you need to go and try to fix it in the best way you can so that those people forgive you. And there is no guarantee that people will always forgive. But you have to do what you can to try to get their forgiveness and their approval. Okay? Inshallah, this is a quick, good answer to this. Is there any other thing on the... No. Nothing else? Okay. I think we'll stop here. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa alihi.